Good morning. My name is Leslie Rowe. I'm on staff here at the Denton North Church. And before we get started on our topic this morning, I want to go back and hit one of those announcements again real quick. We will not meet here next Sunday. That's July 3rd. And there's a few reasons for that. One is because it's a three-day weekend. A lot of people are off work on Monday So we anticipate that a lot of people may be out of town and we can save a little bit of money by not running the MLK. But the biggest reason that we would do something like that is because we've talked a lot about, as a church, being involved in some area of service, going and visiting other churches in the community and just seeing if there's any way we could partner with them on something they're doing. Next Sunday is the perfect time to do something like that. It's not going to happen if you just wake up Sunday morning and go, oh, we're not having church today. So I would just really encourage you to this week be really purposeful about what you can do. Get together with a couple of friends. Go serve somewhere here in Denton. Go to one of the churches that are in this community around the MLK and see what's going on there. Encourage them. Find out how we might be able to help them if there's anything we could partner with them on. Um, It doesn't have to happen on Sunday. You can go Monday, you can go Friday, you can go whenever you find that it works out best for you. You could just get together with a group of people and have a meal and share what God is teaching you through our series that we're doing right now and encourage one another and bring some new people with you and have an opportunity to get to know them. But use this time well. Don't just use this as a time to not have church for the week. Find another way to have church at a different place other than here. That's a big part of what our message is to you guys is this is not church. This is a meeting of the church, but church happens out there. So go and find a way to make that happen. Another thing I want to point out to you before we get started is just how God is working in our church. I think it's easy to kind of get going and forget that we're a church plant, that we're still really um, trying to figure out exactly what that looks like and what God wants to do with us. But one of the things that God has done is continually send people here. And so when we say things like Kevin and Brittany moved here from Nashville and like Tabby moved here from Plano, um, those are big deals. Those are God working to bring people here to ultimately do something big in this community, in the city of Denton, that we don't even really know what is yet. But we need to be grateful and thankful and excited and looking for how he's going to use us in the community. And so I just don't want you to miss that. That's a really big deal. So we're in the middle of our summer sermon series. How's that for alliteration? On who is God. And I want to remind you of something that Brad shared in the first sermon of the series. He encouraged us to ask the question, how do I grow in my knowledge and experience of God And how does this change how I experience God in my daily life? See, each sermon should give you something specific to ask that about. So, for instance, today, the sermon is God is love. So the question becomes, how do I grow in my knowledge and experience of God's love? 
And how does this change the way I experience God's love in my daily life? These are such important questions. See, there's nothing valuable or helpful or inherently good or righteous about listening to a sermon each week. And some of you are thinking, I have suspected that all along. And you're feeling very validated right now. But there is great value in applying the sermon to your life. It's one of the ways we worship God, by taking what we hear and applying it in our life. And that's something only you can do. Brad and I cannot live out a sermon for you in your life. Only you can do that. That is your worship to God, not ours. And so I would just really encourage you to think about those questions. They're really important. And to think about that as we go through um, this topic today of God is love. So the sermon today is not one I'm particularly comfortable with. It's not exactly what I wanted to say. And in some ways, it's kind of weird. Like you would think that of all the topics that we do on God is, God is love would be the one people would be fighting over. It's like, oh, that one's really easy. There's so much to say about that. God's a really loving God. And this is a really awesome topic. People love to hear about God's love. But as I prayed, I kept coming back to this one particular thing to share. And I argued with God. God's sermons don't have just one point. Good sermons have at least three points, maybe five, but not one. Um, I tried to completely eliminate this one point from my sermon. I searched and I searched and I spent a lot of time studying and I spent a lot of time looking on the internet and looking at what different people had to say about God's love and all the ways he shows his love to us. And I tried to focus on a lot of those instead of the one that God kept telling me to focus on. But as he does, God held firm. So I'm not particularly comfortable with this sermon, but I'll tell you that with all my heart, I believe it's what God wanted me to share with you today. So I'm going to start by praying, um, and then we'll get busy. God, I just thank you for being a God who really teaches us and trains us, for being a God that directs us and that knows what the needs of our body are. Um, God, I don't know how to say all of this right. I don't know how to make it fun and entertaining. I don't know how to make it meaningful, but I know that you do. And I just pray that your spirit will um, blot out anything that's confusing or misunderstanding and bring clarity to the truth of what you want each person to hear. Um, Thank you for your Holy Spirit and for the way your spirit moves through us and teaches us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So a group of four to eight-year-olds were asked the question, what does love mean? And I wanted to start by sharing some of their answers with you. Dallas, age seven. Love is when your mom makes a cup of coffee for your dad, and she takes a sip of it before she gives it to him to make sure it's okay. (laughs) Donna, age six. My mommy loves me more than anyone else. You don't see anybody else kissing me goodnight when I go to bed. (laughs) Chloe, age four. Love is what makes you smile when you're tired. Jackie, age four. Love is when your puppy licks your face even when you left him alone all day. Bruce, age eight. This is so telling of a boy. 
Love is when you go out to dinner with someone and you give them most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. (laughs) Now that's true love. (laughs) Vanessa, age 8. You really shouldn't tell somebody that you love them unless you mean it. But if you do mean it, you should tell them a lot. People forget. Marissa, age (laughs) 4. Love is when your older sister gives you all her old clothes because then she has to go out and buy new ones. (laughs) And Sandy, age 8. When my grandma got arthritis, she couldn't bend over to paint her toenails anymore. So my granddad does it for her, even after he got arthritis too. That's love. So there are a lot of different definitions of love. It seems to me that when we talk about God's love, though, we tend to focus more on what a loving God would not do and what a loving God would not be. For example, how many times have we thought ourselves or heard the phrase, a loving God would never fill in the blank. A loving God would never allow suffering. A loving God would never send anyone to hell. A loving God would never want me to be unhappy. Well, guess what? God is not loving. Let me repeat that. God is not loving. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. See, God is not loving. God is love. When we say things like a loving God would never, we are really saying, I have my own idea of what love is, and I will only accept a God who loves me on my terms. But when John said God is love, he was insisting that love is defined first and foremost by God, not by me, not by you, not by the world. Notice that John does not say that God loves us, God does love us, but that's not the point John is making here. He is saying that God is love. He is the essence. He is the wellspring. He is the fountainhead of love. He is the definer of love. God is love, and love is his alone to define. And when we say that God defines love, we don't mean that he defines it like Webster might define something. We mean that God is the very definition of love itself. He doesn't love us because we're lovable or because we make him feel good. He loves us because he is love. God wasn't saying that in our limited form of human love, we will find God. And thank God for that, because we don't always love very well. Our definition of love is way too small. God says, look at God, and that's what love is. John says, look at God, and that's what love is. It is a big love. Oswald Chambers said in his book, God is Love, Love is not an attribute of God. It is God. Whatever God is, love is. Now listen to this really closely. If your conception of love does not agree with justice, judgment, purity, and holiness, then your idea of love is wrong. In that case, it is not love you conceive in your mind, but some vague, infinite foolishness, all tears and softness and utter weakness. 
See, when I act like God needs to love me based on my definition of love, that's a subtle form of idolatry. And many people, including Christians, buy into that today. So a big problem with grasping God's love is that the discussion is being clouded and confused by people who don't know what love is or who God is, and yet speak with assumed authority about both. So one important way we can grow in our knowledge and experience of God's love is to answer the question, what does this tell me, this being the Bible, or this being some action God is taking in my life? What does this tell me about how God defines love? And so here's my one and only point that God gave me. I could have chosen many different ways that he loves us to share today, but he kept bringing me back to the fact that God's love includes discipline and pain. In many places in the Bible, we see a description of God's love as being very tender, like a mother for her baby. And that is true and accurate, but it's incomplete. Focusing only on that aspect of love is what leads to this idea that love is about getting what makes us happy. And that if we don't have what makes us happy, if we don't get that, then we're unloved. It shouldn't involve pain, and it should leave us feeling good. In order to make God appealing to people, and I think in some ways even to make him appealing to ourselves, we play up the tender side of love and totally ignore the fact that love has a stern side as well. But what we see in God and what he tells about himself, who remember is love and the definition of love, is that love has a tender side and a stern side. There's a stern side to love that is necessary to reform us and cleanse us and make us holy. The supernatural love that God has for his people and his creation can assume either a stern or a tender expression, depending upon his wise knowledge of the circumstances and the people to which he is showing his love. I want to look at Hebrews 12, 4 through 11, and I'm going to read this out of the message. In this all-out match against sin, others have suffered far worse than you, to say nothing of what Jesus went through, all that bloodshed. So don't feel sorry for yourselves. Or have you forgotten how good parents treat children and that God regards you as his children. My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. This trouble you're in isn't punishment. It's training, the normal experience of children. Only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us, so why not embrace God's training so we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them. But God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off handsomely. 
for it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. The reason that I chose to read that out of the message is because I was just reading through Hebrews. And when I read that particular passage, it really jumped out to me. Um, And it made me immediately think of Romans 8.28. God's love, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, God works for the good. And so it made that make a little more sense to me as I read through the Hebrews passage. God's love is, is an expression of his holiness. It's directed towards producing holiness in us. And God's love seeks to make us holy. Many people think God's love is such that he accepts me just as I am. And there's a truth to that, and there's a part of that that's not true. He accepts us in Christ just as Christ is. God cannot and will not accept our sin. If that was true, it wouldn't have been necessary for Christ to die. And so in love, God disciplines us, moving us in love towards holiness, not towards salvation. Salvation is a free gift that we get. But in love, he disciplines and moves us more towards holiness. The love of God is not a guarantee that we will not suffer. It's not the guarantee that we will never be unhappy. It's the assurance that whatever suffering we endure is directed toward making us holy by a God who loves us. If it was necessary for Christ to suffer in order to demonstrate God's love toward us, why would we think our suffering is incompatible with God's love toward us? If we only look at the tender side of love, then we will decline to take action when the people we love do what is wrong. What Paul is telling us in Hebrews 12 is that this leaves that person secure in their wrongdoing, unfairly confirming the very action that makes them less a person. This kind of love refuses to do what is distasteful. It ignores the long-term benefits of disciplining because it sees the immediate unpleasantness. It takes the easy way out. And God says that is not love. And we can see that in just looking at what happens when a child is undisciplined. You can see the hate that is directed toward that child when they're not disciplined. And you can see the love that a parent has when they take the time to train them and to teach them and to discipline them. If discipline is done correctly and used as a form of training, it's hard. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of wisdom. Um, It's difficult. So let's look at a couple of examples of God's discipline. One is from the Old Testament and one's from the New Testament. The example from the Old Testament is found in Genesis 37 and then 39 through 50. We're not going to take time to read that much scripture this morning. But just so you know where it is, you can go back and look and read it. But it's about the life of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers when he was around 17 years old. By his brothers. That's an important part. He finds favor with the master that buys him and is put in charge of everything his master has. The master's wife then tries to seduce Joseph, and he does the right thing, and he rejects her advances. He does the right thing, 
So he should be rewarded, right? Nope. He's falsely accused of rape and sent to prison where he is forgotten. Eventually, he interprets a dream for the Pharaoh and is made second in command only to Pharaoh himself. But this happens about 13 years after he was sold into slavery. 13 years of hardship, 13 years of trouble, 13 years of suffering. I don't know if Joseph did anything to deserve this. In Genesis chapter 37, it tells us that Joseph's brothers were already jealous of him when Joseph decides it's a good idea to tell them about a dream where they all bow down to him and serve him. It's certainly possible that that was out of pride and arrogance that he told them that, but it doesn't tell us. We don't know that for sure. I don't know if he suffered what he did because his brothers made evil choices and he just suffered the consequences of people having free will and choosing to do evil. I don't know if it was just the truth that life is hard. What I do know is that in Hebrews 12, 7, we're told to endure all hardship as discipline, to let it teach us and train us, and that God's discipline is consistent with his love for us. What I do know is that without God, the story of Joseph would have just been a series of bad things. And nothing good would have come of it. It would have just been hard and painful. But because God used it to train Joseph, Joseph grew in humility. He grew in wisdom. He became tough and hardworking. He knew on a deep level where all his help and blessings came from and who to depend on. And because of that, he was able to save a nation as well as his own family from a devastating famine. An example from the New Testament is found in 2 Corinthians 7, 12, 7 through 10. Because of the extravagance of those revelations, and so I wouldn't get a big head, I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Satan's angel did his best to get me down. What he in fact did was push me to my knees. No danger then of walking around high and mighty. At first, I didn't think of it as a gift and begged God to remove it. Three times I did that, and then he told me, My grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks. I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. Paul doesn't share with us what this limitation or handicap was. We have no idea. We don't know where it came from, although Paul calls it a gift from God. But that could have just been the way he chose to look at it. What we do know is that Paul let it train him. He chose to endure it as discipline. He tells us it trained him in prayer. It kept him from getting a big head, thinking too much of himself. It trained him to take hardship in stride and to let Christ be his strength. It trained him for how to face future trouble and hardship. And look at how God was able to use him. 
Look at how many people were saved through the message he preached. How many churches were started. How much teaching was done throughout history through Paul because he let God discipline him. And what I want to end with is an example from my own life. And this is pretty personal. After I finished college, I decided to stay in Oklahoma and teach and continue leading in the ministry at the church I had been a part of for four years. I established some close friendships in that ministry, much like you guys do in Focus. One weekend, me and a friend of mine were supposed to sing at a wedding for some friends of ours that were also in the same ministry. My friend never showed up. With the craziness of the wedding, it was outside in August in Oklahoma. I didn't really let that sink in until it was over. And I think in some ways I didn't really want to let it sink in. I knew that him not showing up was bad, but I just kept thinking, oh, he got the wrong date. He just forgot, you know, all the excuses you make when you don't want to really entertain what might have happened. The next day, I told my sister about it, and she said, you have to call his parents and tell them. And that was the first time I really went, she's right. Something's wrong. Something's not right here. So I did, and his parents said, yeah, we've been trying to get in touch with him for about a week now and haven't been able to. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.